12, 46 through 50, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So Jesus is teaching in a situation like this. And who's at the door? Mom and his brothers. Some of you were, are shocked to realize he had brothers. Yes, he had four brothers. Okay. So verse 47, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. So you would think Jesus would go, oh, good, Mom. Come on in, Mom. This is Mary. Um, you'd probably want to pray to her sometime. Uh, she's the queen of heaven. Mary, come on in. What does he say? Verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? You would think they would go, Well, she's right there, and they're right there. I mean, what, do you, what do you mean? Are you confused? And then he goes, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wow, what a, what a shocking event. Now, here's how I would describe it. While many people in the room, and maybe even his own mother and brothers, may have, have felt disrespected by this, I'm going to, I'm going to sum, sum it up by saying Jesus is not dissing his family, but he is distancing himself from his family. He's not dissing them, but he is distancing himself. Why? To highlight the incredible privilege that we have of being part of his spiritual family. Right? Here's how I want to break this passage down today into two parts. Part one, the downplaying of his physical family. Part two, the uplifting of his spiritual family. Right? First of all, let's take a look at Jesus downplaying his physical family. Why, why does Jesus do this? Why doesn't he welcome his family in, especially his mother? You know, it's almost as if he knows that over time there are going to be those who want to give his mother almost godlike qualities. Now, this may shock some of you. Some of you are very familiar with this, and others of you have no clue that this is going on. But there are whole segments of Christendom, and it's not just one church, it's whole segments, many denominations that when it comes to Mary, they pray to her. They believe that she was immaculately conceived, born without original sin, and then lived a sinless life, that she was always a virgin, even after marriage, right? and that she ascended bodily into heaven like Jesus. In other words, she's virtually parallel to Jesus, right? So, um, of course, Jesus, being omniscient and knowing all things, I find it interesting that in this passage and in another passage, he goes out of his way to downplay the significance of his family and even his own mother. 
Right? In fact, here's another passage. Luke 11, 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I mean, here's an opportunity for him to say, Yes, blessed is the queen of heaven. Blessed is my mother. Pray to her, the ever-virgin. Pray to her, uh, the sinless one. How does he respond? Verse 28, but he said, Blessed rather, rather than giving blessing to her, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. None of these terms does he use. Co-redemptrix, gate of heaven, holy mother of God, mother of the world, queen of angels, queen of heaven, queen of the prophets, queen of apostles, queen of martyrs, queen of confessors, queen of virgins, Mary, queen of all saints, virgin most venerable, virgin most renowned, virgin most powerful, virgin most merciful. Those are all titles that have been given to her over the past 2,000 years. But given an opportunity to give blessing to her, he says, no, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why? Why does Jesus run the risk of being perceived as dissing her? Because... Because for our good, we need to know that He alone is the sinless one. He alone is the one mediating between God and us. He alone is the Savior. He alone is the one you pray to and no one else. He is doing this for our own good. God shares His glory with no one. Now, how would you respond, though, to somebody who says, well, why don't you pray to Mary? Why don't you believe she was immaculately conceived and lived a sinless life? Why don't you believe she ascended into heaven? How would you respond to those? Well, let me just quickly go through each of them and give you some uh, biblical background. All right, first of all, when it comes to why don't you pray to her, or to be more precise, they would say, pray through her, right? They they would say that it's not not that we're praying to, we're just asking her to pray on our behalf, okay? Why don't you pray to her? My answer, (laughs) nowhere at all in Scripture are we commanded to pray to anyone but God, and nowhere in Scripture is there an example of praying to anyone other than God. Now, they might come back and say, but is it forbidden to pray to anyone other than God? Yes. Yes. Take a look. Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or here it comes, One who inquires of the dead. You don't go talking to dead people. Don't do it. Don't talk to dead people. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, the nations surrounding Israel. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Why don't you pray to Mary? I don't pray to anyone but God. 
As my lovely wife said once when somebody said, well, why don't you pray to St. So-and-so to find your keys? Her response was, no thanks, I go direct. (laughs) Okay? What about the idea that she was immaculately conceived? Now, let me explain what the immaculate conception is. A lot of people think it's that Jesus was born or conceived without original sin. Now, that's true. The Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus being conceived without original sin. It's about Mary being conceived. She was born, conceived and born without original sin, and they would say that she lived an entire life without ever sinning. To which I would respond, Mary herself, when she responds to the angel in Luke 146 and 7, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior just as much as we need a Savior. People who are sinless don't need a Savior. Now, obviously the people who hold to this know that this verse is there. You know what they say? They say, oh, well, Jesus can be a Savior in two ways. One, he can save you from the sin you've fallen into, or he can save you from even sinning in the first place. That's how Jesus is the Savior here. And I go, where, where else in Scripture does it say that she is to be looked at any differently than anybody else? Nowhere. You have to read that in. There's no idea that, that she lived a sinless life. Okay. Then what about the ever-virgin she was, she's always a virgin, even after she was married. And that's what, in my opinion, makes Joseph a saint, right? <laughs> Some of you will get that later on. Um, look at this. In Matthew thirteen fifty-five. the people are amazed at his teaching, and they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? There they are, named. James goes on to become the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he writes the book of James in your Bible. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, he writes the little book of Jude that the men have been studying. We're done with it, though. Um, he has four brothers. Now, those who don't believe Mary ever, um, that, that Mary was always a virgin, what do they do with this? Well, they say, well, that word brother there, Adolphos, where is it, uh, his brothers, well, that can mean like cousins or relatives. Well, um, you can get an electronic concordance where you just click on a word now, like with eSword, and you right-click on it, and uh, you find out that that word Adelphos appears 349 times in the New Testament. Now, it can mean a spiritual brother, but every other time it means a a literal brother, like James and John were brothers. Never does it mean cousin or relative. In fact, there was a word that could be used to mean relative. Um, Right here in Luke 21, 16, Jesus says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers, Adelphos, same word used up here, and relatives. That's a different word that could be used. But the, the scriptures use the word 
brothers. Never does it mean anything other than physical brothers, or it could mean spiritual brothers. But in this case, remember, it's Jesus' brothers and Mary showing up, and his spiritual brothers are the ones listening to him. So this has to mean his physical brothers. Here's another verse in Matthew 1, 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, um, knowing her, you know, it doesn't mean he didn't know who she was, married, like to introduce you to Joseph. No, it meant they didn't have sex, right? Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived and bore a son. That's what the word is, right? He didn't know her until she had given birth to a son. There's no reason to believe that Mary and Joseph didn't have a a normal marriage where uh, they had sex and they had children. You have to read into the text the idea that she was an ever-virgin. What about the idea that she ascended into heaven? Nowhere to be found in Scripture. Absolutely nowhere to be found. In fact, Mary is mentioned very infrequently in Scripture. We have the birth narrative, right? We have these, these events here. You know, there's the event where she and Joseph leave Jesus at the temple when he's 12. We have these events where she shows up to get Jesus, and Jesus kind of distances himself. Um, she's at the foot of the cross. And then the very last thing we read of her is in Acts chapter 1. The 120 believers gather to pray, and it says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's it. No more. Paul doesn't mention her at all in all of his letters. So where do you get this idea that she ascended into heaven? You have to make it up. Again, why does Jesus go out of his way to distance himself? I believe for our own good. So we focus on him, not on anyone else. I believe that's that's what he's doing in this passage. Now, uh, we've looked at him. And by the way, you go, well, which one do I believe? Do I believe that I should pray to Mary or I shouldn't pray to Mary? That's where an even more fundamental question is this. What do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe in sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority, or is it scripture plus the traditions that accumulate over uh, the church, uh, over church history? I believe that scripture and scripture alone must be our sole and final authority. If you open it to church tradition, in my opinion, you run the risk of blaspheming God. So you've got to first decide what's your sole source, your final source of authority. Is it Scripture alone or church councils and church tradition? I stand on Scripture alone. So let's keep going. Now let's look at the second part, the uplifting of his spiritual family. The uplifting of his spiritual family. Now, um, he, at, at this point... His brothers were not believers. John's Gospel, chapter 7, tells us that they did not believe in him. Now, after he rises from the dead, they believe in him, and we find them in the room praying. 
But at this point, they were not believers. And Jesus says, you know, these people who are listening to me, my disciples, they're my real brothers. Now, how many times have you heard someone say something like, well, we know everybody on the planet is God's child. In fact, I heard that on the radio just this week. We're all God's children. God is our, our heavenly father. That's not true. We're not all God's children. Ephesians 2 says this of non-believers. We were by nature children, not of God, but children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There are children of God and there are children of wrath. Well, how do you get out of the wrath pile and into the children of God pile? Well, in John 1.12, it says, But to all who did receive him, right, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You are not a child of God unless you trust in Christ. Christ dies on the cross to pay for your sins, to atone for your sins, to appease the wrath of God that we read about in Ephesians 2.3. And then he adopts you into his family and loves you with unbelievable love, right? But you're not automatically a child of God. But now that you believe in Christ, let me, let me come up with three implications from this. Now that you are a child of God, here are three implications. Number one, you are more dearly loved by Christ than even his own flesh and blood. Do you know how much God loves you now that you are in Christ? Now think about this. Jesus knows that he is going to be crucified brutally murdered and he knows when it's going to happen and he has the opportunity to have one last meal. If you were to die, if you knew you were going to die tonight and you had your last lunch, who would you have it with? Wouldn't most people say, I'll get my family. My family's most important to me. Who does Jesus have his last meal with? Not his physical family, his spiritual family. Luke twenty-two fifteen, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He chooses his spiritual family. You know, um, last week I pointed out that the law of God needs to be preached in such a way that it shows sinners that they are guilty before a holy God and that they deserve eternal damnation. To not do that is to forfeit giving any reason why we need Christ. So the law is to be preached in all its fury. But, but, once a person sees his condition and turns to Christ and you trust in Christ, The law has no more threat over you. And you are now incredibly loved. Sometimes I think we can, uh, I I can overreact to the misuse of the preaching of the law. Um, So we preach it hard, preach it hard. But now that you're in Christ, 
There's a time to just relish the love of God. Right? Now that you are in Christ, this applies to you. Romans 8, I'm going to start at verse 28 and quickly go through the rest of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know what this is saying? This is saying is that, that the sovereign God, we sang, sang about his sovereignty, he is in control over everything. There's not one maverick molecule loose in the universe. God is in sovereign control over it all, and he is working it all together for your good. You know, um, sometimes you talk to somebody and they're kind of narcissistic, and you know, they think the universe revolves around them. If you're in Christ, guess what? The universe kind of revolves around you. Or God, whom the universe revolves around, decides to organize it all around you for your good. Do you understand the love? Then he goes on and he says, but you know what? You have an enemy who's out to get you. Satan is accusing you every day. Of your sin. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know that he is at the right hand of the Father talking to him on your behalf? Sure, Satan is accusing you of your sin. The law of God is accusing you of your sin. But Jesus is interceding, not Mary, not the saint. Jesus is arranging the whole universe for your good, and he is interceding before God on your behalf. What kind of love is that? You know, sometimes when we talk about um, loving Jesus or having love for Jesus, we think of him here on earth walking around with his beard and the robe. Think about the sovereign Lord of the universe who controls all things, loving you, being for you, interceding for you. And then Paul, uh, he, he just... He can't believe this love, so he breaks out with these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody's got to say amen. Come on. Are you awake out there? Does this matter? <laughs> this should affect your life. This should change your, the way you, you go to work tomorrow. To know that God loves you beyond what he loves, even his own flesh and blood, and he's working the whole universe together for your good, and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
It's got to make a difference. Now, let me give you a second implication, though, that flows from Christ loving and, and uplifting his spiritual family over his physical family. You know, uh, he loves you more than his own flesh and blood. Jesus needs to be more dearly loved by you than even your own flesh and blood. He loves you more than his flesh and blood, and he wants you to love him more than your own flesh and blood. You know, the creed of many people today is this. There's nothing more important than family, right? There's nothing more important to me than my family. It is noble to love your family. It is natural to love your family. It's unnatural not to love your family. People give their lives for their family. How many movies are about the importance of family? Which is why it's so shocking for Jesus to say, you know your family that you love? Luke 14, 25, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, yes, Jesus is using hyperbole. He is using exaggeration. The word hate here is being used for shock value. You're not to hate or you would be violating the commandment to honor your father and mother. You're to love your spouse. All right, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Here he says you've got to hate your wife. It's, a, it's hyperbole. It's making a point. But you know what? Even when, when Scripture uses hyperbole, you know, sometimes people go, oh, it's exaggeration. Whew, don't have to do it. He's still making a point. Right? Like when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Do I really need to do that? No. But you do need to, to do something. Right? He's making a point. What's his point? Even your natural affection that you have for your own family is to pale in comparison for your love for him. Right? Jesus makes it clear that your pursuit of following him may ruin your family. It may mess up your family. It may cause not just family tension, but a destroyed family. Are you willing to do that in your pursuit of Christ? A lot of Americans say no. Anything but my family. Right? And Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How many times have, have you seen this happen? I've seen it happen a lot where somebody is, is being drawn to Christ and they're coming to learn about him. Maybe it's at a church that teaches the word or a Bible study and they're excited and they're, they're learning and they're asking questions. And then all of a sudden, boom, it stops. You kind of explore and you find out that um, 
parents aren't too happy that they are looking outside of the denomination they were raised in. Or the spouse is not too happy. Yeah, a little religion is fine, but let's not get holier than thou where you're making it uncomfortable for me to live my lifestyle. And they start to feel the tension in the family. And they have to decide. Do I continue pursuing Christ or do I value family peace more? And many, many, many choose family peace over pursuing Christ. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. If you have to lose your family over me, then lose your family over me. Right? You know that in certain Muslim cultures, if you become a Christian, you not only lose your family, but your family may take your life. And here in America, we go, well, I want to find a nice church with a nice building with people that are just like me. And I want to be able to uh, have a little bit of Jesus and not it, have it no disturbing on my family. I just want it all. Whereas Jesus says, I didn't come to bring that kind of lukewarm religion. If you have to lose your family, then lose your family and follow me. It's only 70 years, then you die and go to eternity. Right? Oh, sorry. 80, 90, 90, 90. <laughs> I'm going to die by 70, so just look at me. <laughs> I, do, I need to cha- I change my, my table, my timetable. So how much pain are you willing to endure? For Jesus, we have a a low pain tolerance here in America, don't we? All right, now, one last thing. Jesus dearly loves his spiritual family. We are to dearly love him. And now that we're all in his spiritual family, we need to dearly love our spiritual family. We need to love one another. Now, again, here's where Americans go, well, I want to find a church where everybody's just like me and we all get along and uh, the less differences, the better. Do you know that Scripture says actually God is more glorified when we're different? When Jews and Gentiles and black and white and rich and poor all get together and love one another as opposed to, I just want to hang out with people that are like me. How is that any different than going to a country club? We need to love one another. Men, if you want to know what we're going to do tomorrow night, we're going to to watch that Paul Washer video where uh, he's speaking at the youth conference. Um, Some of you know who Paul Washer is. I heard his testimony the other day. And he said this. He said that he used to work out, lift weights in a little gym across the street from a church. And he couldn't stand those holier-than-thou church people. So he would blast his ACDC Highway to Hell music at them (laughs) while they were going to lift weights or go to church while he was lifting weights. He hated them. Until one night he woke up in a pool of his own vomit from all his drinking 
and he heard the gospel, I don't know if it was on TV or on the radio, and he became a Christian, and then he thought, all I want to do is be with those people. Why? Because, you see, salvation is not just something that goes on in the mind. God changes the heart. The heart is changed from hating God to loving God, and on top of that, you get bonus love for the family of God. A sign of true salvation is a love for the church. A sign that you're not saved is you endure the church and you go home and you criticize. Oh, so-and-so talked to me today. You backbite, you gossip. You have a critical attitude. You see, God gives you a love for him and for one another. Here's what John says. 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He's going to give you two things. One, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Your, Your behavior changes. Two, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, does this mean you just have this undying love and nobody ever irritates you? No. Let's face it, we're all irritating. Right? We all drive each other crazy. Amen. <laughs> Finally, the amen. Where do I? That was supposed to be toward the love of God, the amen. Now we got the... Right? But Christians are irritating. Church people are irritating, aren't they? But I love you anyways. That should be our attitude, that we love one another. Okay? John goes on. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You're fooling yourself. So the person who says, well, I love Jesus and I love his word and I love all the stuff I can get on the Internet, but actually going to church, I can't handle that. You're fooling yourself. Let me close with this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a uh, great British preacher. He preached in London. Died in 1980. Uh, But he was a doctor before he was called to be a preacher. And um, let me just read this paragraph. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when as a brilliant doctor in London in the 1920s, he was thinking of leaving the medical world and becoming a preacher. He was being pulled in two ways, and this tension came to a head one night in a dramatic way. One night, his wife-to-be and some friends of theirs wanted to go to the theater in London, and they persuaded him to go with them. He says, I have no idea what the play was about at all, But they were all very excited about it. What I remember is this. As we came out of the theater to the blare and glare out in the square, suddenly a Salvation Army band came along playing some hymn tunes. So you've got this rickety Salvation Army tin band in contrast with the glitz of the London theater. And I knew... These were my people. I've never forgotten it. I suppose I had enjoyed the play. When I heard this band and the hymns, I said, these are my people. These are the people I belong to. And I'm going to belong to them. Jesus distances himself from his physical family. Why? To show that our sufficiency is in him 
and Him alone. He loves His spiritual family more than His physical family. We need to be willing to put Him first, even over our own physical family. And we need to love one another. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Jesus.